Welcome everyone and I hope you're all enjoying the World Cup going on at the moment. These are busy times in football and you may be wondering where the end of season review is for the Nordic Football Podcast. Don't worry, it will be coming probably towards the end of the World Cup campaign. But in the meantime, we've got a really long in-depth interview with the Hamcam assistant manager Tom Dent who has been on the show before. The last time we had him on he was the manager at Sturdles Blink in the second tier of Norwegian football. But we go really in-depth about his time so far at Hamcam, a season, of course, which saw them survive in the Elite Serians. So settle back. This is a long one, some really good stuff in this interview with Tom. And uh, I hope you really enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Nordic Football Podcast. I'm Steve Wiss, and I'm delighted to be joined by the HamCam assistant manager, Tom Dent, who comes back on to the show after a very interesting year in the Elite Serien. Tom, it is very good to have you back. How are you doing? Uh, thank you very much for having me back. I feel like a bit of a bad smell that I just keep popping up every so often. Uh, can't get rid of me. But um, no, everything is, is good. Uh, it's been a, a lot's changed since the last time we spoke. So um, it'll be good to, to dissect it a little bit and see what's happening. Um, but it's been it's been an interesting year, to say the least. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back, actually. Um, you know, I think I would have... Uh called for you to come on earlier, but I know you were, you were involved in a very intense season for Ham Cam with, uh, I'm sure, uh, a lot of uh, distractions. Of course, the last time you were on the show, you were uh, manager at Sturdles Blink over down there in the, in the Obos League. And unfortunately, they've now been relegated this season from there, but you did keep them up via the playoff last season. Uh, congratulations on that one. It was a, That was a, a fine achievement in itself. Um, but um, in the off-season... You moved, obviously, from Sturdles Blink to Hamcam. Now, obviously, some might think, why would you go from becoming a manager to an assistant manager? But in the Norwegian system, there's prof- fully professional, the semi-professional. I guess the appeal for Hamcam, moving up there to the elite Assyrian, joining forces with Jakob Mikkelsen, well-known, highly respected coach, must have been quite a strong lure. Yeah, um, I think that Obviously, the fact that the inquiry came in the first place was was a very big surprise. It was not particularly something I was looking for. I was I was fully in preparation mode to lead uh, Stuart, I think, this year. And we had a good uh, winter, we felt, in terms of business and, and having plans in place. Um, so when the inquiry came, it was it was quite a big shock. But the reality is, as you say, is that Hamcam had been promoted. We'd played them twice. Um, we'd lost twice. And, and we, I had a very good impression of, of Shesu Gekdal and, and Gaia um, as a staff. Um, and it was one of those where opportunity to learn of someone, like you mentioned, of, of Jakob Mikkelsen, who's been Danish coach of the year in, in 2018. He's led two teams in, in Denmark into the... European qualifiers and was one game away from getting to, I think it was the Europa League group stages with, with Sundariska. Um, it was something that I haven't had so far in my career, which was the opportunity to learn off somebody and, and to to be a little bit in the background and, and actually focus on sort of details more rather than the, the entirety of something. Um, I really enjoyed my time as a head coach. It's something that I definitely would like to do again and and I really enjoyed my time in, in Stuttgart Blink and 
I've been very fortunate that the, the staff and, and everyone there I still have regular contact with and I was as disappointed as everybody that the year has turned out as it has. Um, but for me on a personal level, it was it was an opportunity that it was really hard to say no to when you looked at the looked at the whole package. Yes, absolutely. And of course you you moved into Hamcam at a time where they themselves had undergo undergone quite a change because Dethel Rechdal obviously moved to uh, to Reasonable. He, he got Hamcam promoted. That was probably a slightly unexpected move because I don't think he was a name initially linked with Rosenborg. So they themselves, Hamcam as a club, making some changes in the, in the coaching department. Um, did you feel when you got there, though, that they were quite a settled uh, club and unit because uh, they seemed in a really good way after after an excellent promotion? Absolutely. Um, and I think that the biggest strength from their promotion was that unity. Uh, I think that, I'm sure we'll talk about Christian Eriksen later, but even he, I wouldn't argue at that time, was a was a, was a a star. Um, his star was growing, but it wasn't like he felt he was better than the group and he was never like that to the day he left. So we had a settled group. We had, It was a club that, in reality, had probably 12 months earlier than planned. I think the plan was to be challenging in 21 and, and, and to gain promotion from almost this year. Uh, so in reality, they, they achieved promotion 12 months early. Um, and then you had Jakob come in, um, who in many ways was quite a big name for a club like Hamcam in the same way as Sheffield Redgar was when he came in. Um, and has really bought into what had begun and, to be honest, just built on what was there before and and tried to put his or our stamp on things a little bit more, um, but not sort of veering away too much. Um, and that then meant that the player group were very quickly on board and, and we were able to, uh, at least at the start of the season, catch a few teams off guard and by surprise at actually how how uh, high a level we could achieve um so it's been a it's been our bedrock really of why we've got to where we've got to and how we've got to is is that togetherness and the fact that if you look at the last lineups that played uh, in the elite series i think nine or ten of the starting 11 always played almost the year before so um it, it was necessary and, and it was a, a calculated plan from the from the from the club to to use that promotion bounce and, and use that togetherness to to stay up this year and, and then the plan going forwards now is to is to not revolutionise so much but evolve and build on that foundation that's been built to hopefully next year be more stable um, but we're also under no illusions that Brana and Starbeck are slightly different animals to Christiansen and Yaiv, um in terms of the league table next year so it's going to be as difficult, if not more difficult, to, to stay in the league after this year. So we're in a much better position than we were 12 months ago and we hope to be in an even better position in 12 months' time again. I would totally agree with that. I would say, looking ahead, it is early still and things can change, but it, it might be the strongest ever Elite Serian that there's ever been since I've covered it anyway in terms of the 16 teams in there. So, um, yeah, you can, everyone's going to have to really work hard this winter, but um, is it simple to say that the start of the season, the objective was just stay in the league? Is that the directive from the club's board? Yeah, that was, as I said, we, we, 
uh, had promoted earlier than expected. Uh, we'd gone through a management change that is a difficult one to handle because it's one thing to lose a manager when you're doing well, uh, but it's a difficult to lose a manager when you gain a promotion because everything goes up. So when you're a new coach coming into a team, most of the time you come into a team because they've failed uh, and you're trying to turn around fortunes or make things better. Uh, for Jakob, firstly, and then myself a little bit later, we were joining a team that had been successful and had got promoted. So we were not only having to um, adapt to what had already worked well, but we were having then to try to be proactive in, in improving small things that gave us bigger chances then to, to stay in the league. Um, we had no real ambitions to do anything else other than that because we knew that you know, there was Yav yeah, was always going to be one to struggle. We we're always going to be in that mix. Sunderfield were always going to be in that mix. Alderson were probably going to be in that mix. Haugerson had a poor start. Um, so there was probably a group of five, six clubs at the start of the year that we looked at and we said we've got to be top three of that little table of six to make sure that we that we survive. Um, we managed that, but that group of six, you know, we weren't expecting it to be Viking and, and Strongwood so as it was near the end. Um we certainly didn't think it would be softball midway through the season. Uh, and we, you know, teams like Trumsa and Odd, who had a very, very good second half of the season and ended up in top half of the table, you know, we expected to be teams that could be around them. So I think we've learned a lot this year. I think, as you said, our objective was to stay up and we achieved that. And now it's a case of we've got to utilise the next stage of the plan now and, and stabilise ourselves in the in the in the elite, shall we say, at a level where the club is built to be. If you look at the history books, the now national team coach, Dolores and he is a coaching hero uh, in, in Hamcom. He, he was the last manager when Hamcom were at this level. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a level that we want to to continue to, to compete at. But the hard fact is last season, we had the smallest budget in the league. Um, and, you know, we can't always, it, it's unrealistic to think we can keep producing miracles, particularly as we said, when the, the strength of the league next year is going to be so much higher. So we've got to do ourselves even better. We can tap ourselves on the, or slap ourselves on the shoulder and say we've had a good year this year, but come 4th of January when we start back up again, it, it's, a, it's a new battle. Yeah, it was, um, it's funny you say that. I think every single team outside of the top six at some point looked in danger. Uh, perhaps apart from Viking, who just literally dropped like a, a lead balloon, didn't they? But everyone else at some point was seemingly in trouble. Uh, several teams obviously got themselves out of the mixer. You yourself finished in 13th place, just one point, uh, one place above the um, the drop zone or the playoff spot, but a comfortable seven points clear of, of that uh, drop zone. Hamcam themselves, 31 points, like I say, six wins, an incredible 13 draws. Uh, a really high number for uh, elite Serbian football, 11 defeats. In terms of statistics, you pretty much finished where, where you deserve to, Tom, really, according to the statistics. Expected points, 34.2. Expected goals was 32.95. You scored 33. Expected goals against, 43.12. You conceded 43. I mean, they say things average themselves out, um, and they pretty much did with you over the course of the um, the season, really. But the start was interesting because a lot of people um, were looking at last year in the Obos and, and the main reason that Hamcam went to was a really strong defence. It was one of the main contributing factors. But there was 
a lot of talk that the change of coach Rechtal, known for being quite defen- uh, negative and defensive, might make you a bit more um, attack-minded, watchable. And early on, I have to say, some of your games were wild. Um, the first three or four, it was end-to-end football. It was crazy stuff. And then, and then it kind of changed a bit. Is that just simply a case of um, just adapting to the league a little bit, initially catching teams by surprise, and then you settle down? Yeah, I think when you're a, when you're a newly promoted team, uh, and we have to include myself and Jakob in that, in, in the newly promoted part, because the reality is before the, the first ball was kicked against Lidstrom, we had three players in our entire squad that had played at the Elite Stadium before. That was Malagovic, that was Shudaspar, and that was Shukovov. They were the only three players, I believe, from memory, that played Elite Stadium football before. Um, and Kongsville, sorry, but he'd played very, very little football the year before. Um, but it means then that everyone's sort of, you use the first games to sort of find out where you are actually, you know, wh- where where is the level? Where Where is, you know, what can we afford to do? What can we not afford to do? But the first game against Lillestrom, the first four to five minutes, we were clearly the best team. We went 2 in the lap. Christian Eriksen hit the bar from an unbelievable volley. Um, and we thought this was going to be, uh, you know, this is going to be nice and this is going to be a good season. And we come off the pitch at 2-2 going, what on earth has happened there? And the, the difference there was Akar Adams coming on at half-time and Puana Helon coming on at half-time. And both of those two gave us really, really big problems. And and we made some, you know, mistakes that were punished quite rightly from Nidistrom. So, you know, when we played Trumsa again, we had an even game. I, don't, I wouldn't say it was the best performance we had, but it was an even game. Key for mistake from Hagen. Uh, meant that we lost the game instead of taking a point. And Christian Sun away w- was the same. We uh, we um, we gave away poor goals, but it was end-to-end because Christensen made it an end-to-end game and we knew that before. Uh, if we made it an end-to-end game, that they would they want to have counter-attack. They weren't good established either with or without the ball at that time of the season because they were missing as many central defenders as they were and, and things like that. Um, so we, we struggled and we managed to get a draw. But again, if you're talking statistics earlier, if you look at the statistics from that game, we should have lost the game by, I think, one or two goals. Um, and then the flip one with, with Sunderfield at home, we um, we won 3-0. We we made a tactical change after... I say we, I'll start that again. Jakob made a tactical change after 10 minutes. Um, went more in a 3-5-2, which gave us the better chance to press and engage Sunderfield higher up the pitch. And... From that point on, we were by far the best team and, you know, 3-0 didn't really flatter us in that game. So, at that point, you're off to sort of the promotion bounce and we played teams that, yes, Lillestrom had, had had a good season the year before, but they historically, you know, they finished sort of middle to lower table. They had a what was expected to be a, a surprise year last year and finished, I think it was fourth. Um didn't really have a best of pre-season, so we fancied our chances. Trumsa, Sonderfjord, Christian Sun were all against teams that we expected to compete against to stay up. It was after then, then that we started playing your teams like Roaringer and playing uh, Glimt and playing... Uh, uh, I can't remember who else we played in that period, but we played sort of better teams. And there, then, you, we had to show a different side to ourselves. And, and that defensive solidarity was, was something we knew we could rely on. Um, uh, we had a, my first game for, for Hamcom was away in Mulder in a, in a training game. 
and we'd spent all pre-season up to now working on on how to use the ball a bit more and being a bit more comfortable and, and pressing at a higher point. And we got absolutely demolished 5-0. And it was probably the best thing that could have happened to us because it made us realise that, you know, this team was not used to losing. They'd lost, I think it was no games in the last 15 games of the season or was, or one maybe, I think. So they weren't used to losing and, and they had to feel that real punch in the face to make everyone just sort of wake up a little bit and go, oh, OK, actually, this isn't going to be as easy as all boss. Um, and we adapted from that then. So it meant then that we, we relied on that solidarity. We, we, we after the Trumpster game, we we made it sort of clear what was important to evaluate ourselves against, not just the result. But if we're looking at a game, you know, what do we want a hand cam team to look like? You know, we talked about things like teams not wanting to play against us, being difficult to break down, putting balls in the box and, and being a bit more direct um, because that's what brought success to Hamcam previously and that's what we needed to be to, to get success this year as well. So we found our groove. We got a lot of draws, but we kept putting points on the board. Uh, everyone, including yourself, was concerned that you know too many draws might cost us in the end, but the, the reality is we wanted to keep putting points on the table. Um, we knew that we would lose some games along the way. We knew that goal difference was going to be a big thing. And that's why we only lost, I think it was two games all season by more than one goal. Uh, sorry, three, because we had the, the Lillestrom game the last game. Um, and we knew that goal difference was going to play a, an important role. And it did near the end because it forced Sunderfield then to have to try and beat us. And they didn't. And we, we stayed up. So... You say we we we've been ourselves this year. We, we've relied on that defensive solidarity, and, and we've tried to find ways to score goals with and without Christian. Um, but we know that next year we have to have more of a threat again uh, against better teams, and try and maintain that defensive solidarity that we've managed to do for most of the season. So it's been a as I say, it's been an interesting year for us because Jakob has of course wanted to come in and do things. His way, but he's respected and we've respected how successful Hamcom have been previously and, and what's made them successful. So we are, if you watched Germany-Spain last night, you would have seen uh, Spain go very man-man orientated to high up the pitch when, when Germany had a goal kick and Germany tried to do the same against Spain. And, and that's where we've got a lot of success this year is we've managed to defend low when we've needed to, but we've managed to find a way out of defending all the time whether that's get a goal kick for them or get a throw in for them up high up the pitch or find a, a fixed situation where we can break out of our block and press a little bit higher and and stop teams really being good at what they're good at doing. So I think it's only odd and Trumps that we've failed to take points away from this year uh, across the 30 games or across the 15 other teams. Uh, we should have got something against Trumps at home, but that was we shot ourselves in the foot. Um, we should have got something odd away, but we shot ourselves in the foot. So that's that's on us. But um, we feel that we can compete at this level, but we just need to be better, and and we need to we need to improve in 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 everything we've done so far. You you talk about the um, Jakob wanting and yourself and the coaching team kind of wanting to do it your way, but also respecting the ham cam traditional way of of of, of their success. And um, this this the formation you, you generally have been known for using. Five four one or three four three, and this is something that Hamcam employed last season as well. Is that now kind of the identity of the club? Do you think? And 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 to change that would would take big things. And were you basically there was was there no other way around it going into this season? You had to use those systems because of the players that you had and what they were used to in the time frame that you had. 
I'll take the first part first. Um, the Hamcam way, the Hamcam identity has always been about being uh, direct, physical, high intensity, balls in the box, forward orientated football. Um, historically, in more of a 4 4 2. And they had played 4 4 2 for many, many years. Um, but when Shetham and Gaia came in, uh, Hamcom had a tradition. They were bottom of the table. They were conceding loads of goals in the last five minutes of games. So they changed to a back five to basically solid, solidify the team. And from that point, the club has only ever gone upwards. So in terms of the style, I think the style is perhaps more ingrained than the formation. Uh, it's not like Rosenborg or Paul Glimp that you know, Borda Glimp, if you played anything other than 4-3-3, then you would be severely criticised. Rosenborg has success playing with a back three this year, but they got heavily criticised in the winter after a poor pre-season. And then it's credit to Shetton and Gaia that they've managed to keep the trend going forward, develop the team, and now have a really attacking-minded team while not playing 4-3-3, because it's very rare that the Rosenborg fans accept that. It's more about, for us, the style. So... I think when you look at the, 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 the formations we played, you have to look very carefully to pre- and post-Christian. Um, because with Christian Eriksen in the team, it was like having two players. So, you know, we used to have it where when we played teams that played about five, we'd play 3-4-3 or 5-4-1 because it was easiest to go man-to-man -man and easiest to, again, as we talked about, come from being in a low block and go into a higher block because it was easier to give responsibilities to players of who's depressed and who had responsibility for different areas of the pitch. The tactical change we talked about against Sunderfjord was switching from that into a 3-5-2 because it was easier then to have two strikers against two central defenders and again, easiest to to move our midfielders and to press the full-back to the Sunderfjord and then lock them in on one side. So in the first half of the season, Christian would play as a winger in a 3-4-3 and would play as a midfielder in a 3-5-2. Um, and sometimes, like Voringer away, we we defended in a three-five-two for that reason. But we attacked in a in a three-four-three. We pushed Christian a lot higher as a winger. We played Emil Silnes as a as a striker defensively and a winger offensively because it meant that our front three could pin uh, Voringer's back four, and we could use our wing backs then to overload on the sides and create two against ones because of at that time they had Leone. And they had uh, Donham on the wings, who were not the most defensively minded. So it was easier for us then to to overload on the sides, still have three people in the midfield, uh, yeah, two and a half in the midfield. And then you can have one of the central defenders step forward then against their one striker. Um, so we've sort of we found different ways when we had it with Christian. When Christian left, he was such an important player for us. We can't deny the facts. He had four goals and five assists in the 14 games he played for us. Um, that's difficult to replace. That's even more difficult to replace when you don't really have the market to go and gather someone of his quality back in. Um, so if you look at the second half of the season, we predominantly played more 3-5-2 because that was what we had with the players we had available. And it was easier then to uh, hold players more to responsibilities uh, as a group. Whereas with Christian, he was such a good player that you had to leave, you had to give Christian a bit of freedom. So if he drifted from the right wing when he was playing in the front three and over to the left side, then 
we couldn't be angry with him because most of the time when he did that, something would happen. We'd get a chance or we'd get shot or he'd score or we'd get an assist or something. So you, you accept that. But when you're a team like we were that had really good togetherness and team effort and, and solidarity, then we needed the structure then was the most important thing to try and um, emphasise everyone's best qualities. So the second half of the season, we played more of a, of a traditional 3-5-2. Um, allowed us to have two strikers then in the box at all times. It allowed us to have more threats on the counter, so we weren't back heavy, where we have 10 players really low on the pitch. And then to try and get out of it meant the the one striker on his own then was, was you know, didn't have a lot of support. Um, and if you look statistically, before Christian, we had 18 points. After Christian, we had 13 points. So five-point difference is probably fair. I think we had something similar with the amount of goals. We had five or four or five less goals scored with Christian, without Christian than with Christian. Um, so, you know, we found a way of doing it and that was the most important thing. But that sort of identity, that physicality, that directness, that balls in the box, that that's a given. You know, I think we had that Sunderfield game early in the season. We had something like 38 crosses in the box and we managed to find a handcam player 12 times. So, you know, that that they really struggled with that. And the games that we've done our best this season have been games where we've managed to put balls in the box and, and create a lot of pressure in around that. So that will be a ham cam style going forwards and that will continue into next year as well. Um, we just need to be better at finding the when and, and how to do it and, and developing the players' qualities even more so that if teams get better at defending crosses or, or preventing us how to get into those areas, what do we do then? Um, we had a focus on set pieces. We were better at set pieces this year than they were in Obos. We can be better again. Uh, we didn't have a single penalty this year, so it'd be nice to actually win a penalty. That can give us a nice... Uh, no, no one gets nice penalties in Elite. Four teams didn't get a penalty this season, which I couldn't... Yeah. I was looking at the penalty statistics. Viking got about 10, and even Buda Glimpton got four. So uh, the referees just don't give anything in, in Norway, apart from when, they, when, when odd play against you, of course. Um, oh, of course, but... but that was like I say, they had three pen- three. We conceded five penalties, and three of them were against odds. So, uh, and it's our own fault to blame that. Um, with VAR, hopefully next year we might get one or two. I still think we should have definitely had one away at Christensen. Uh, there's a very nice video somewhere of Jakob Mikkelsen agreeing and, and doing a 20 meter sprint to the fourth official. But uh, um, no, like I said, we, we we have a we have a playing style that is very much Ham Cam's way. Uh, but the formation isn't necessarily as, as connected to that um, because I think everyone appreciates right now that even Jakob that we have a squad that's built to play three at the back we have three or we did have three very good but different defenders in Hassan Kudajai and Vector Shaivik and, and Halvor Orpstahl they suit best in a three but next year we want to also have the ability to play with a four because there are certain games that, that can suit us Um and now we have that foundation with the three. We can use some of the preseason now to to try a four and see if it works or not, and and take the rest from there. So um, no, it's it's a mix of things to answer your question. But uh, the playing style is is a non-negotiable, and the and the formation is something that we will we've tried different ways and used in different ways to get the best out of the players we have available. Who would have been the Hamcam penalty taker after Ericsson left the club? For those interested. It was begun as Jonas Enkudu and then it was Hassan Kudu try. Interesting, interesting one. Let's talk about the, these tactics and formations and how, how 
how much experience had you had before of um, a three-five-two or a three-four-three system? And how is it like night and day co- coaching? Say four at the back compared to to three at the back. Like American viewers and listeners might look at American football like the three-four defense as opposed to the four-three defense over there. That is like night and day. So hard to change systems. It, it takes time. From a coaching perspective, is what are the, the fundamental big differences and is it really challenging? Um, the answer to the first question is I'd had zero experience or very little. I'd done a little bit when I was a, was a youth coach when I first came to Norway, but I've, I've predominantly worked in teams that have played 4 3 3. So um, 4 3 3 has been my bread and butter. Um, but the, the advantage I had was that the Jakob, I have more responsibility of what happens on the ball. And that gives you an element of flexibility because it means that it's more about putting players in certain spaces and positions and areas of the pitch uh, based on their start positions. The thing I've always found playing against the back three is that it gives you an element of flexibility because you need wing backs that can play both as a winger and as a full back. You need central defenders that can play as a central defender, but at times also play as a midfielder. You need strikers that can also play a little bit as a winger as well as playing as a striker. So it, it gives you a lot of flexibility. So while I was learning the defensive principles of playing with a back five, which Jakob has been excellent to both teach the players and, and also teach me, he's made it very clear and, and the principles very, um, very obvious for everyone to see. Um it allowed me then to use the the attacking bits, and we've had a lot of discussions then of which spaces do we want to exploit and how do we want to get there. And and even now we've been off season now for two weeks since we played Lillestrøm um, in the last game, and I've probably got the first three weeks of preseason planned of, of what we we're going to do with the ball, just because I've had so many ideas and, and thinking of of what we want to do based on the, the year we've had. We need to score more goals with the third or fourth lowest scorers, so. We need to get the ball. And it's, the thing with it was, it wasn't always about, you know, if you look at the number of touches inside the box, we're somewhere mid-table. So it wasn't about getting in and around the box. It was more about the fact of turning those uh, penalty box entries into end product. Um, and that's something we know we need to work on. So I've had a year now uh, of working in a back with a back five or back three. Uh, we had a year of working both with a front two and a front three um, so I'm looking forward next year to starting in January and actually being able to, to build things then through pre-season rather than I joined on around the 1st of March and the season began 1st of April so by that time it was about uh, again realising what was there before and, and trying to drip feed things as the season, as the season went in Yeah you had some uh, interesting statistics um you were the lowest uh, ball possession in the league, 41.7%. You had the fewest shots uh, of any team in the league this year, averaged less than 10 shots per game. Like you said, though, um, in terms of touches in the penalty area, you were only the sixth worst. worst. So you were, you were getting in there, but you just weren't really shooting or, I don't know, maybe trying to wait for the perfect uh, opportunity in that regard. Uh, a couple of other ones that really stood out to me defensively, Aerial duels, you got involved in nearly uh, 50 aerial duels per game, which is really high. Um, Tromso, for example, were only 27. So it's really interesting just to look at the different styles of the teams. You were 
you were indeed involved in the lowest number of goals per game out of any team in, in Elite Serien. Um, in terms of over and under two and a half, you had the most under two and a half games. It was a very high scoring season in Norway, one of the highest scoring I've ever known, to be honest with you, Tom. Um, and to be fair, even your actual overall average of number, I mean, it was 2.5 goals per game uh, average that you're involved in. That would be quite high for some leagues. So it's not like you're a, a boring team or anything like that. It's just compared to the rest of the league, which is so wild uh, at times. So um, let's let's touch on Christian Eriksen, like you said. I mean, this player, um, four goals, five assists in, in, in the games with you. He was a massive part of the both the you know, expected goals, expected assists. There was talk he was going to leave you pre-season. I think it's probably something you always knew eventually he was going to leave the club. I guess two two questions, maybe even three. A can how he can you plan for that? Um, because there's all sorts of speculation and stuff. How do you then replace the player? And do you even have the resources you mentioned earlier, the lowest budget in the league? Reportedly, I don't know. That surprised me that you'd be even lower than Yerv. But um, you know, it's really difficult, I suppose, when you're at that level. You lose a player, even if you get good money for that player, you can't just necessarily reinvest it quickly to to get a, an immediate replacement. I'm going to touch on the statistics part first. I feel we need to go through that. The reason why we had the most aerial duels was because we were the best team to press, as we said, from playing out from the back and things like that, uh, which meant we forced teams to play long. And then we had three central defenders that were good in the air. So it makes sense then to play to, to our strengths. Um, the reason why we got so many draws then was that we were probably one of the best teams to stop other teams doing what they're good at. So, you know, we played... Ball limbs, we were very good at stopping them getting the ball into their two higher midfielders and making them have to put crosses in the box, which they don't want to do. They want to get in behind our central defender and look for a cutback or things like that. We managed to stop them doing that. Waring are the same. They love to fake two against one on the sides. They love to, to have an overlap from the fullback and have a run from the midfielder. And again, we managed to stop them being able to do that. We managed to prevent them being able to put cutbacks and, and, and really threaten us there. Uh, Goodsa, again, not many teams have taken points from Goodsa at Goodsa, particularly early on in the season, but we managed to handle uh, their, their the ability that they like to run in behind a lot because we managed to stop them at source more and, and when we did struggle then we were organised enough to defend. The reason why we've drawn so many games is because we haven't been able, good, we haven't been able or we haven't been good enough to then exploit other teams' weaknesses. And I think the reason why the league has been so wild this year is because the, the, the main thought process into games is that most teams put their style and have so much belief in their style that they just do their style and then they put it against another style and whichever style is the best wins the game. Um, you know, Bull of don't change how they play. No matter if they play against Mulder or if they play against Yaya, they play the same way. Rosenborg have been a little bit adaptive but on the whole play the same way. Mulder have pretty much played the same way, but they've got more defensive backbone than they've had in previous years. Voringer play the way they always do. Odd play the way they always do. Trumps have played the way they always do. Sosborg have played the same way, despite the fact that they had a massive losing run midway through the season. So the reason why this year has been so crazy is because most teams have just done what they're used to doing. Um, Are you saying there's sort of not much adaptability in there? or not? And teams perhaps, this uh, mentality, you know, we'll outscore you. If you, we, we will do what we do, we don't care what you do, we're just going to beat you. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think the, the reason why we've had then the ability to succeed is because we've gone the opposite way. We've accepted that, you know, if we try and go toe-to-toe offensively, we're going we're gonna to struggle. So we've decided to do it slightly differently and go, OK, we're going to be really hard to beat. You have to, you're going to have to work really, really hard to beat us. And you're going to be really, really hard to break us down. And then we, you know, we've had to then be better at taking the chances we get. We don't create many. You said that. So, but we have been decent enough then to say that despite the fact we don't get many chances, we, we do take the ones we get, whether it's by luck or whatever, you have been able to take them. Um, I think, I don't know what it was now, but certainly after around 20 games, we actually had an average shot distance of about 12 metres, which is because we put the ball in the box a lot. So most of our shots then were coming from headers or or things like that, whereas other teams had it slightly higher. I think it was 16, 17 metres. Um, so that's where we've got our success uh, for last year. And now this year is about, we have to be better at then If we're going to probably take a similar approach, we have to be better exploiting other opponents' weaknesses. Um, but again, next year will be a crazy year. Brun will come up here. They've absolutely stormed the Orbis League in last year and they'll go all in on the way they want to play. Uh, Sarsborg will be the same. Odd will be the same. Trumpson will be the same. Boring will be the same. All those teams will play in a very, very similar way next year. It's just whether they're good enough to do it. And the one final statistic, which is also has something to say, is that there was no managerial changes this year. Absolutely none. So most teams have played the same way through the whole season, apart from you could say a Viking or a Goodson near the end where they kept not winning, so they had to change something and Viking changed to a back five and even Goodson changed to a back five for a period of time. So, But mostly teams have played the same way. Yeah, when they came up, they were trying to play out from the back and they were trying to score brilliant goals with the ball, but in the end they found out they didn't have the quality and then... They still tried to do it, but they did it with slightly less risk or and they had a summer window where they got a lot of players in. So um, that's a little bit for that one. Now, I'm going to stop there because you're probably going to want to edit that. So I'm going to stop. No, I, I love that. I absolutely love that bit, actually. So and don't, I really, it's interesting you say there's no, there was no managerial changes. I mean, you would have got a massive price on that, that half of the Alsvenskan lost its jobs over in Sweden or in Norway. Everyone's sticking the same and I can't really think of a time when even I thought, oh, how has he kept his job here? There was It was one of those years where I think a lot of teams kind of did what they were expected to do, really. And those that did struggle, um, it was, you know, the, the, you know the, those sort of managers kind of deserved the time uh, and expectations were not massively high there. So it was it was good to see quite a lot of, of, of patience uh, there, there, Tom, I must say. But um, going forward, just back to the losing the Christian Eriksen thing. I mean, obviously that was a big blow to the team. And did you, um, obviously you change it. You said you changed your tactics after you left. That's how cru- crucial that player was. And it's about getting, getting through to the end of the season uh, with the points you needed. Um, but in terms of within the club itself, how big a blow was it? Um, it was probably less of a blow than if we lost him in the, uh, in the winter. No, it would have been a bigger blow if we'd lost him uh, at the beginning of the year because he was he yeah. was people people said he was the DNA. He wasn't a DNA. He was the soul. He he was he was the essence of the club. He he has his dad was a a big player for the club in 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 history. His story is 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 Jamie Vardy esque. During Corona, he asked the sports director if he could come and train because he was playing in a in a 
the Division Three team and, and wasn't allowed to train because of the COVID restrictions. So he asked the club if he could come and train and then he got a deal for six months and then he got a deal out of the year and then he signed a two-year deal and then three months later, Rosenborg wanted to sign him. So I think if we'd lost him in the winter, it would have been a big problem. Um, but through that experience in the, in the winter, we knew that, you know, the plan was to keep him to the end of the season because we saw him as, as fundamental for staying up. Um, but actually, big credit has to go to Jakob because he... He, I say he was the one that was driving for him to leave. That's not technically true, but he was the he was the person who went to the club and said, "As much as we we want to keep him, this is now a point where we have to look at the bigger picture and go. You know, we can't we can't stop Christian Eriksen going to Boulder. Like that's that's a move you can't realistically stop on a human level." Um, Never mind the money that was involved. I think the the, the club wasn't actually that. I think, it, as stupid as it might sound, they were they were that stubborn that they would have rejected another five hundred thousand pounds. I don't I don't think the money was was that appealing, even though it was a, a record sale for us. I think they they just because the objective was to stay up as much as it was. It was that was that was the only decision that was driven. But I think Jakob looked at it and went. To keep a player like him for six more months when he's not going to be 100%, you know, we can't, it's not good on the total. It's not good for the group. It's not good for the player. Um, so we sold him probably ahead of schedule, but we had enough confidence in the strength of the group. And I think the group had enough strength in the strength of the group that we felt that we could handle losing Christian at that point. At that point, we had 18 points after 15 games. We were ahead of schedule. Usually they say one point a game is enough to stay up. Uh, one, I think the points average is 1.1. 32 points is the normal magic number to stay up. Uh, we were on 18 at that point after 15. So we felt that we had enough. It, it might not be as pretty or as secure as if we'd had Ericsson, but we felt we had enough. The group felt like they had enough. Christian wanted to go and we had to respect that. And it's a fantastic story all around. Um, but there's a famous line in Moneyball. If you, if you try and play like the Yankees, then you're going to lose to the Yankees. We, we couldn't play the same way with Christian Eriksen. We had to find a different way. It didn't affect us too much from a defensive point of view because we, we had players that could play and do the roles. But from an offensive point of view, we, we lost that X factor. We lost that intensity. We lost that quality. We lost that ability to 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 do the unexpected, um, so we had to find a way, and and we did. Um, we 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 signed the real one Hassan, and we signed Victor Lin uh, as offensive signings in the window to try and give us some of the qualities that we lost with Christian. Um, but in the end, we found that actually we couldn't exactly fit them in totally, so we we ended up relying on the players that had been there the whole way. Um, We'd lost Martin Bueller for the start of the year. He started to come back fit in September and played most of the games at the end. We played with Paul Shukoval and, and Jonas Enkelu mainly as the two strikers, with Marcus Pedersen there a little bit as well. We played uh, Christian Onsru and we played Frederick Schulstar in the midfield and they were pretty much stable throughout the rest of the, the season. So we just found something that fitted. But the thing that fitted was we ended up the season, I think, with 10 out of 11 players being Norwegian and nine out of 11 players coming from a 40 kilometre radius. So we found our way and, and, and for us it succeeded. But 
you know, we would have had a far more comfortable and better year if Christian had been there until the end. But we were all delighted for him. Uh, he was at our, we had our Christmas party on Wednesday with a mixture of supporters and, and players and coaching staff and, and uh, the administration of the club. And Christian was there and, and he was treated like one of us. You know, he got a medal for being joint top goal scorer of four goals. We had six, I think it was five players on four goals. So we had five uh, goal scoring medals to give out. Um, but Christian was there and, and he still, you know, whenever he is in Hamar, he always comes in and says hello to the players and, and the staff and, and the club. And, and that will always be the case. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting you say that you kind of ended up with the team that... Um kind of got you into the into the elititarian and i guess that my next question here is when you get to a certain stage of the, of the season were, were you were you were you kind of surprised how, how how well the group had adapted to the top league really because i i looked at a lot of pre-season predictions for, for you guys i i had you actually 13th exactly you one of the few teams i predicted exactly but i i think a few, most sources had you higher actually um probably in the 10th to 11th range and did you, did you almost feel it was um, expectations were a little bit overly high considering the resources that you have and the players that you had and did in some ways, in a pleasant surprise, um, a lot of the guys kind of um, really adapt to the level a lot better than even you might have expected? I think uh, if you kept Christian Eriksen for the whole season, I think we would have achieved that um, because I think he... It's, it, again, it's less about his qualities individually, but it's more about what he gives in contrast to the rest of the team. Um, so I think that the the reason we were tipped so high was because the that they were so hard to break down. It was I, I said last year, as as a Stuart Blink manager, that Hamcam were the best team we played against all season because they, they, it was so hard to find a weakness in them. They were so well organised. They were so good in in areas or phases where. There was lots of second balls and, and things like that. They would like the ball was like a magnet to them. They scored lots of goals. They scored lots of different types of goals. They spread goals across the, the team. So while Christian and Yozenko had a lot of goals, there was still like um, Onsu had goals from midfield and Megavis had goals. So they were they were Bron uh, were like they were too good every single player um, this year in Orbos. Um, but Hamcom had a had a system that worked for them, and and when you have a system or a structure that that functions as well as that, it really doesn't actually make too much difference which players you put in. I mean, you look at the border glimpse machine, and it's exactly the same. Like twelve months ago, Vettelson was on the bench; he couldn't get in the team. This year, he's been by far the best midfielder uh, in the league. Um, Everyone was curious at the start of the season how Espiol was going to score goals. He hasn't scored as many as Botheim, but he scored goals. Uh, Mukva scored goals. Um, so if you've got a machine that functions, then actually you need to have some key players in there. It's not like you can play anybody, but we had a machine that worked. You know, Kudachai has been a fantastic central defender for us this year. Uh, and we're, you know, we're going to have to replace him now in this winter. His contract expired, and he's not going to sign a new one. That's that's open knowledge. Um, but we're going to have to find someone that fits his qualities profile to fit into the machine. Um, you know, Vetlashevic and uh, and Obdal, who played the most uh, as the two outside centre defenders, they fit the machine. You know, I, I question if they could play in a back four, but in a back three, they they're one of the 
for me, they're the two best young defenders in, in Norway in that in those outside defensive roles. Vettler is fantastic on the ball and he's very good one against one. Holvor has got far better to break forward with the ball and he's got much better defending the box. So um, we have a machine and that's been the biggest thing that succeeded this year. And again, if we go back to what we referenced with Jakob at the start, the reason why Jakob didn't change too much or we haven't changed too much is because the machine functions. We've just given it different gears that we've had to turn into at different points during the year. Uh, you know, when you play... Uh, or at least during the middle of the season, we had this reputation. Nobody wants to play us. Nobody wanted to come to Briscoe Briscoe has been a, an awful pitch in terms of quality of pitch. We know that, but we have to use that to our advantage for now. Um, and that's been as much the success that the machine has worked and the players are trusting in the machine. Um, and that's been our biggest success this year. We, we've managed to keep that machine well-oiled. We haven't had too many big injuries so we haven't had to categorically miss um was it put the machine down and fix it back together again it's, it's pretty much been consistent all year and we've had a togetherness in the group the one we've had to change some players for certain reasons you know they've just slipped right in like it was easy hernandez foster's a young american midfielder who at one point we could we oh, we could be open we told him he could leave the club he made his debut against viking away and he was outstanding for 65 minutes. And we, we none of us saw it coming. Um, and then we ended the next game. We played, or the game before we played Rosenborg at home. We were by far the best team against that Rosenborg team that day. We should have won the game. Uh, but we ended the team with a 19-year-old Latvian and a 20-year-old American as the two central midfielders against Rosenborg. And they had Vecchia and Holsa and uh, Borkvai and all those guys in the midfield. But because the machine functioned, those two were fine. You know, we spoke to obviously Shetton and Guy after the game and they said, you know, we saw you making changes and we thought you were uh, like subbing down the team, but you were the more likely to score at the end than we were. And that's a credit to the system and a credit to the group that no matter what player went into that team, it was very, very Sheldon that the player that came in let the, that let the group down. And that, that's been our biggest strength this year. And that's going to be the, the most important thing to keep hold of as we go forward into, into next year. We're going to talk about a, a potential elitisarian team of the year soon, Tom. But before we go there, is it fair to say probably the biggest down point of the year for you was the defeat against Sarpsborg? I mean, I have to say, I, I, I forget a lot of things in football, but I won't forget this game because... It was Ditto. a free. It was an absolutely. I cannot. I still no idea how you lost uh, the fixture. That you took an early lead in the fifth minute. Can't actually remember who scored that goal. And then it's Foster. And then it's Foster. Yeah. And and really, it's fair to say I think you dominated a lot of the contest. Yes, Salzburg did have some chances, but then they they just completely went berserk and um, and and overcommitted. And you had some incredible chances to make it two nil on the break. I don't know how it didn't go 2-0. This is a Sarpsborg team that had lost eight consecutive games at that point, I do believe. And I we talk, I actually think the manager might have bit the dust if he had lost against you that day. Um, there was a lot of talk about it. They just didn't look right. And then, incredibly, in stoppage time, they, they nicked an equaliser and then a penalty with probably the last kick of the game. It completely turned around their season. I don't think they lost a single game after that. Um, and for you, though... That, that's, that's a bitter blow. That's a really bitter blow. You still were above the relegation zone and everything like that. But 
mentally i mean how do you recover from that and, and how do you pick yourself up so we i say quickly you lost your next two games after it but eventually sort of long term get that out of your system uh, i'm guessing that was a really big challenge yeah and I, and i think that the difficulty with it was that it, it's one thing that the event like you know <laughs> We go, we go through two against the keeper alone a minute before they make it 1-1. One, one. Uh, same player, Hernandez Foster, has missed the target and they, they basically played the goal kick and they, they, they score. Uh, it's one thing, the events. It's another thing that when you walk off that pitch, you see how much it means to Sarsborg. The Sarsborg staff, in fairness to them, they were very humble. Um, they were very sort of, you know, today we didn't deserve to win. This is just football. We're obviously happy, but you know you should be really pleased with your performance, which I didn't have to do. I, I'm not sure if that had been me and they'd been in their shoes. I'm not sure I would have been as 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 humble as that. I think I would have been halfway around the stage and going mad like most of them were. Um, so they deserve big credit for that. Um, but it's another thing that you then have to face the music. You know, you have to. Everybody is sat in that change room after a game and thinking exactly the same thing: how the f have we lost that game and what happened and and, you know, how do, uh, at 90 minutes, we were seven points clear of Sarsborg. We were in the playoff point place at that point. Um, and we were in a really good position then to start not thinking about going down and actually start thinking about, you know, mid-table and, and, and going forwards there. We had a Viking team at that time we were struggling next, which we knew that we could get something. And we had an odd game that could go either way at that point. Um. But it took time. And I think the other side to it as well was, if I remember correctly, that was in round 20. Um, and we had played pretty much consistently every weekend from round 10 uh, with no breaks, no no sort of extended time, which is rare in Norway. So at that point, mentally, we were quite tired. We, you know, we needed a, we needed a, the, the buzzword is circuit breaker now but we needed a break we needed something just to just break us up on it um and again Jakob was was good we were good after the game and sort of said like you know there's things we can learn we were annoyed at the fact we didn't take chances but we knew that we were disappointed at the way we conceded the second goal because we felt it was a mental collapse after the 1-1 one -one. we we collectively staff included felt like we'd lost the game which we hadn't we had a point and we we all would have taken a point to go at Sarsborg at that point in time um and then it was more disappointing the week after against Viking because actually against Viking we scored first we had a very good start we 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 scored early and we felt like okay Viking are struggling here we can score and and frustrate them the longer they are frustrated the the more likely it is that we're going to uh, get something from the game we conceded about 90 seconds after they scored and then they scored from a from a mistake from us with probably 15 minutes to go and we we didn't really create anything after that and that was probably more disappointing for us as a coaching staff than the the softball game because the softball game we did a lot of good stuff we just had a three minute blip which happens that's the beauty of football the viking game we just were flat and that was when we really felt that there was a uh yeah not a mental block but we needed to just take a breather um and then against odds again the performance against odd wasn't bad uh we had a spell 
probably midway through the second half where we hit the post. We could have got an equaliser. Perhaps should have got an equaliser. And then we give away a rash penalty with five minutes to go. We lose the game 2-0. And then we just use that international break well and said, just go away and don't think about football. Come back. And when we come back, then we just reminded them what we talked about earlier is, what are we? You know, in those three games, not so much the softball game, but certainly the the Viking and the odd game, we, we'd forgotten ourselves a bit. We didn't have that same ugliness of people didn't want to play us. So we didn't have that same directness. We didn't have that same... Uh, that same aura, I guess, is the word that, you know, when teams want to risk it at home or when we go to teams, they, they think, oh, this is going to be a tough game today. You know, some teams like Viking or Goodsu in the last few rounds, there's been teams that probably felt they've got a little bit of a soft underbelly and, and they're a little bit, OK, we can get a win here against us. It's always they know they have to really battle to get something. And that's just sometimes a goal or even just a point. Um, so we used the break well. We, I think it helped that we had Yav because everyone knew the importance of Yav um, and how big a game that was in terms of us staying up. And we just found ourselves again. And again, if you look at that first half against Yav, I think we are... Battered them, didn't you? You absolutely battered them in that, in that first yeah. half. And they, they, to be fair to them, they they scored an incredible goal um, out of nowhere. And then you were, you were put under significant pressure actually the last I thought they were going to equalize to be honest with you Tom that day um uh, but you you did really well to hang on to it you showed I think your strong togetherness and and that's when it all you know when, when it does help when you've got a great group to, to see out those wins in the end mm, and that's what we needed we needed that type of win I think after the softball because you know we all thought it we all we're all human that we've we're leading with 2-1 with five minutes to go we're under pressure uh, we're all thinking back to Salzburg and like, we don't want this to happen again. Um, but the difference was having experienced it, talked through it, evaluated it, we handled it. You know, we, we made a we made a big call in goal. We changed Hagen out for Yendal that game. Uh, and a lot of the reasons for that was because of Yendal's ability in the box. And that was a big th- a reason then in those last five to six minutes that we we managed to, to handle that scenario was because... Uh, Yendal was able to to deal with the crosses and, and, and deal with that aerial barrage perhaps a bit more than Hagen has done previously this season but then there's been many times I know you mentioned it uh, when we played like Glimt and, and and Mulder and those teams where Hagen's made a really big save when we've been 2-1 down or something and then we've scored and we've got a point out of it so the biggest thing about this group of players is if you look through the squad pretty much everyone has played and pretty much everyone has contributed in some way, somewhere during the season. Whether it's Hernandez Foster who scored goals, whether it's both keepers who have made big contributions at key times, whether it's the strikers who might not have scored many goals but have contributed goals at really important times, whether it's the midfielders the same, whether it's the defenders the same. Everyone, everyone has contributed at some point, and I think that's been that's been the reason we managed to eventually get over that Sashborg defeat. It sat hard. It still irritates me. Uh, that we didn't win that game, but we didn't win that game not because we weren't good enough. And I think that's that's an important difference mm. um, compared to some of the other defeats we've had this year. You know, we 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 deserve something from that game. Jakob wasn't; he was disappointed, but he was disappointed for everybody. I was disappointed for everybody, not because we lost, but because we didn't feel we deserved to. And that's sometimes harder to take than. When we lost 2-1 away at Rosenborg, we we deserved to lose. Rosenborg were better than us and we just go, okay, let's go, move on. 
the goalkeeper thing was interesting because in the actual fantasy game, he was listed as having jet lag for like three or four weeks or something <laughs> like that. And everyone was presuming, oh, hold on a minute, he can't have, he can't keep having jet lag. It actually is a tactical switch, which uh, I, I know a few people were commenting about that about the fantasy game. But um... yeah, I mean, to be fair, it did start as that as well. It wasn't just a footballing decision. I mean, Nico came back from Guatemala. I think it was the Friday or Thursday or Friday. He trained and he he said himself he didn't feel right. He, he didn't feel ready. I'm sure he, in his heart of hearts, he would have felt that. I think that he would never have admitted it consciously that he didn't want to play because he always wants to play. But it was such an important game uh, that we made that decision. And then, like everything in football, when keepers or when any player gets their chance, you know they take it or they don't. We felt then that we we had to stick with with Large after what he did in that Yav game, and you know for Nico it's it was hard, but he was a fantastic professional, and he's got as much, if not, yeah, he's got as much reason to to deserve credit for the success than the Lars has for the last eight games, and that's going to be a, a different challenge we have to solve next year. But you know it's credit to both of them that we have two good goalkeepers that managed to contribute to our success in different ways. Yes, the team that always uh, must come first. And uh, you got the job done. You beat Sandefjord away from home, two goals to one to secure your elite Serian uh, place um, for next season. So I must congratulate you on that. And um, I'm sure, that, you know, the relief. And, um, you know, there, I'm sure there have been plenty of celebrations after that one, Tom, because you worked really hard for that this season. Yeah, it was it was, it was was relief, I think, for everybody after that Sandefjord game. And, it was nice because at that point we were five points clear and, you know, we all knew that if we lost to Sonderfjord then it was still two points clear, but then it becomes a bit shaky Stevens, as, as Jacob called it. But everyone was very, uh, everyone was very much focused on, we want to do it against Sonderfjord, we want to get it done. We want, we don't want to, we don't want it to be, you know, we draw and someone else loses, which means we stay up by default. We, we, want, to, we want it to be the ones to win the game to stay up. Um, and you know it was a it was a big relief. It was obviously a very nice evening after Sunderfjord on the bus and and into the night. Um, but it it meant then that that the, the last two weeks of the season we could all just have our shoulders down and we could actually enjoy our football again because it is it is difficult to enjoy football when there is so much on the line and so much pressure and you know everyone talks about it and everyone's making reference to this that and the other whether it's team selection or the amount of draws you've had or we don't play enough forward football or why is our team the one with the least possession, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it meant the last two games of the season, we could try some things. So all of a sudden we went from being the team with the least possession to all of a sudden, I think we had more possession than Drumster at home. And I think we had just as much possession against Lillestrom away. Um, we were a little bit less defensive and that tells from the fact we conceded five goals. We didn't score as many goals, but we, you know, we could have, created more chances than we did, but it allowed us a chance to try some different players and try some different things and and go into next season then with a feeling of, okay, we know which direction we want to go in um, instead of waiting until Sonnefjord did three weeks later and now going, right, now what? When uh, a lot of teams have already started their business and, and evaluated and, and, and are looking forward to next year already. So it's been a really, as I said, interesting year. I have to be honest, as much as I didn't enjoy it at the time, it's far more exciting to be in a playoff as long as you win it. So uh, last year was more exciting and a and a, and a bigger sense of relief. Um, 
But for this year, I was more than happy to to sit down uh, uh, with my feet up on the on the sofa and watch Kongsvinger play Sonnefjord and think, ah, oh, I don't need to worry about that. And then I would have been if I'd been in the middle of it. So, uh, but uh, I'll say it now: if you offer me Qualic next year, I'll take it as long as we win it. Well, at least you had more excitement than being on the Stromsgod set beach for the last ten rounds. So. Um... <laughs> Um, anyway, we, let's talk about the rest of the league now a little bit, Tom. We, we, we're going to produce a, an eleven here, a, a team of the season for Elite Serien. So I've asked you for, for your um, suggestions. You can do whatever formation you want. Is there a Hamcam player in it? I've, I, I have to be honest, no. Um, I very strongly considered Kudachai. I thought uh, you might consider him, yeah. But I, um, I decided in the end that there was three central defenders that we're a little bit ahead of him so i've i've uh, i've gone for another three three at the back okay so let's start with with goalkeeper then and really it's three contenders i would say it's got to be it's got to be Karlstrom, christensen or or Valstead. one of those three tom which one are you are you personally going with for me it's, it's christensen yeah uh for me it's Valstead in odds um i think i i think we have to talk about Karlstrom in the sense that I think there's a lot of people that questioned why Moles assigned him, and I have to be include myself in that. I, I, I did. That. I really I, didn't I looked like at that. that. And when I'm not sure, but statistics don't lie. He's had the, I think he's had the most clean sheets this year. Uh, if you look at his save percentage, it's top five, I believe. Uh, which in a in a strong mold of defence is is something to look at because it's not often that teams who are finishing top and are as dominant as they have a save percentage as he had. Uh, so I think that tells you that he he had a good season. But I just think that Christensen had an extremely good first half of the season, but I think tailed away. But I think Volstadt's been the most consistent for me, bar those two games immediately after his Sweden debut, where he had a shocker against, I think, Haugesson and whoever they played at home next. Uh, but I think he's been the most consistent and by far the most complete uh, keeper in the league soon this year. Yeah, I think first two-thirds of the season especially, certainly the first half of the season, some of the saves he was making were absolutely exceptional. It's uh, it's one of those this season. I don't think, I think you could go either or. Christensen, I think, was exceptional. Um, obviously, had the edge in goal scoring as well. Uh, the incredible <laughs> finish against Tromso. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I had a feeling you might go for Valstadt there. Let's let's talk about defence. I actually went with a back four of uh, Linez, uh, Haugen, Tiedemann, Hansen and Dragsnes, but you've gone with a back three here. Who, who are your back three going to be? Uh, my three central defenders, uh, Eric Hogan from Mulder. I think he's been exceptional this year, wherever they've put him, uh, whether it's been in the middle or on the right or the left. I think he's been brilliant. Uh, brilliant defender, brilliant defending the back space. He's, he's really balanced uh, Risa and Tiedemann, Hansen and Bjornback when he's played. I think he's really been able to balance the three. I think Berg Risa has been very, very good. I think he, he looks far better as a left central defender than as a, as a left back. I think that he, he has that. He's good in the air. He's good defensively one against one. He can cover out on the sides. He's good on the ball. Uh, I think he, and he's left footed and that's absolute gold dust um, for a central defender. I consider Kudachai, as I said, um, but I've gone for Henriksen. Um, and I think that will be a little bit Maybe controversial in some parts, but I think that as the season's gone on, he's got better and better. I think he's got more comfortable in that role. We, 
I remember when we played against him in the in the spring, we felt that he was a little bit afraid of the space behind him. He was a little bit wanting to step forward because he could control that space a bit more. But I think with with games, uh, I think he's 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 improved a lot, um, and I think that. Uh, he he ended up being one of Rosenwald's best performers near the end of the season. He was lucky not to get sent off against Gutsa, but that's another thing. But I think on the whole, he's been he's been extremely stable and, and has been a, a huge rock then to what's been a very good defence of Rosenwald this year. It's interesting. He's more of a converted central defender. He, he's always been midfielder back for most of his uh, career, but uh, did really well at centre-back. I've seen a few mention him, actually. didn't surprise me that you put him in there. So we've got w- a wing-backs, uh, two wing-backs here in your system, uh, Tom. So who have you gone with there? Uh, Linez is obviously not a surprise from Mulder. I think, uh, I think that he's been phenomenal. Uh, and I think that he, he can get up and down the pitch. Again, he's good in the air. He's scored goals. He's, he's contributed a lot this year. Um, and I think that he, he's been a mainstay in that in that team. Left left wing back was a bit tricky. Um, Dragnes has played mostly as a central defender this year. So he, he is my left wing back, but I do it a little bit reluctantly because I think that he he is uh, he's played well. I, I've considered a few. Um, but I, I think on the whole, he's the he's the best in that position. I think there've, there's been quite a few teams this year actually that have struggled with left backs or left wing backs. I think they've used quite a few. Glimpse have played uh, Wenger Mungo quite a lot, um, and he's had a mixed year. Rosenborg played Tog Seth and Pereira. They've both probably played about the same amount of games. Mulder have played the uh, Lurvik for the recent games um, because the usual one has been injured. So uh, I've gone for Dragnes on that left side. Yeah, I went for Dragnes actually in a, in a back four. I think he's had a very good season. Like you say, most of the time he is that left of a back three. Um, but yeah, I think he he deserved his, a spot in the team for mostly an exceptional campaign. Now, three players that I'm guessing are in your uh, side here, Tom. Uh, Sivert Mansvert, Hugo Vettelson and Armel Pellegrino. Am I correct in, in saying that? Which one of those three do you think would be player of the season for you in a leader series. It's probably one of them three, hasn't it? I think it's tricky. I think, firstly, just to have it said, I would have Manswerk and Vettelsen as a, as a midfield two. Uh, I'd have Pellegrino as a left wing. Uh, I actually think there's been an extremely high level of midfielders this year in, in the Elite Syrian. Uh, we haven't even talked about Sefirius in Haugesund. We haven't even talked about Breivik in Molda. Uh, we haven't even talked about Holzer in Rosenborg. Uh, so I think there's been an incredibly high level of midfield quality this year. I think a lot of teams have have really had engines that have moved it, uh, made it move forward. I think Mansvark is an exceptional talent. I mean, the fact he's only 20 is scary considering what he's done so far. Uh, but for me, Vettelsen, to score over 10 goals as a midfielder is is special to score over 15 as a midfielder is out of this world. And then to have, I don't exactly know, eight or nine assists in addition to that, I think uh, the fact he's averaging nearly one mole, uh, one goal point a game is exceptional for a midfielder. Uh, and I think for, again, from where he was 12 months ago to now, I, th- I think he, he can't look beyond him. I think Pellegrino had an unbelievable spring, but I think it stopped up a little bit in the autumn. 
but when you score as many goals as you did and you still finish top goal scorer, then you can't say he's a bad player at all. Yeah, all three absolutely uh, exceptional. I uh, I went with a midfield three, which is asking a lot of man's work in this system, uh, along with Vettelson. And I, I also put Eric uh, Kitalano in there. I think he's had an unbelievable year for Trump. So um, a very offensive-minded uh, three there. I went with Kasper Tengstedt up front after an amazing year at Rosenborg. And Tobias Heinz actually made my team as well um, on the right wing. Who, who are your final players in, in your uh, team, uh, Tom? No, Tengstedt has to be there. I know he's only played half a year, but again, he's got over a, a goal point a game. Uh, it's just incredible. Um, I considered Heinz because I think, it's particularly in the autumn, he's been unbelievable. But I, I in the end, I, I cheated and I went for Carlo Holso as a sort of inside mm-hmm. right winger. Um, because I think, again, on the ball, I think Tang Set has been... I would love to know how many assists Carla Holter has got for target set. Um, because I would imagine it's probably at least a third or maybe even half the goals. Uh, I, I think Holter had to find some time to fit in the Sheffield-Rechdal-Rosenborg system. But I think from round 10 till the end of the season, he was exceptional. I think he was Rosenborg's best player by a mile. Every time Rosenborg played well, he was in the middle of it offensively. Um, and I think his his all round game has improved a lot this year. I think last year he was very very good offensively, but could be got at defensively, particularly in the team. Uh, but I think this year he's he's been an all round very very good player. Uh, so I've cheated a little bit and and stuck him on the wing, but I, I think I'm allowed. You've got to do that in these team of the year sometimes, haven't you? It's this is the way you got to fit someone here and there. Thanks for your thoughts on on that team of the year, Tom. And now I'm just interested. What your overall impressions and, and thoughts are about Norwegian football as a whole? How strong is the elite Serien now? We've seen teams do reasonably well in Europe recently, obviously helped by Buda Glimp and Molde have done really well. Um, the national team debate, surely they're, they're, they're going to make a, a major championship sooner or later, aren't they? I hope they do anyway. But um, it, it feels like Norwegian football on the whole is on the up again. The strength, like I said, next season it could be the strongest elite series that I've ever known since covering this league. No, I think it's it's it definitely making steps. I mean, the fact that we've had two teams in Europe do well, uh, Molder will be disappointed they didn't uh, qualify from the group stages. Um but I think that they're, that they're doing well is, is is a credit. Obviously, the coefficient point is close, which means now we're close to having two teams in the Champions League and 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 having more Norwegian teams in Europe. That's going to have a benefit. Um, and you know the, the quality of the league is, is only getting stronger all the time. You know you can see that next year Rosenborg are going to be up there again even more. I think the benefit from this year will be massive in terms of their hunt for gold. I think. Border Glimps are going to be up there. Molder are going to be up there. Lillestrøm are going to continue to be around it, but how close to it, I don't know. Uh, and you'd expect Viking to to go back into that mix. So the fact that we have a title race again in Norway um, and that we have so many, not big teams as in size, but in, definitely in terms of the traditional, you're only really missing start in that top league. And then you've kind of got all the traditional Norwegian big clubs in the in the league, and I include Ham come in there, of course. Um, so I think that Norwegian football at the moment is going from strength to strength. We had um, 
we had the uh, classification of the academies this week. There's a lot of academies that are now top, not top, but definitely European level that are producing players consistently. And, you know, you see players like Andreas Schoederup, who's absolutely bossing it out in Denmark at the moment as a as a 19-year-old and uh, other Norwegian players doing well. Bossheim in Italy. And, you know, I, th I think that as much as Norway is always going to be a, a, a development league, it's never going to be a top league. It's always going to produce for somebody else. I think you can see the strength of the players that are going out and the strength of the teams from Norway now that are competing in Europe to see that, you know, Norwegian football as a whole is on the up and, you know, the, the attendances are getting higher. Uh, the, the use of younger players and the link to younger players is getting better. There's more younger players starting to come through and there's there's more younger players being trusted to play. We've We've had, I think we were the second or third highest amount of minutes to under 21 players this season. Um, you know, and there's loads of other clubs that have done that. So it's definitely a fantastic league to be involved in. And, and uh, again, you look at Hocken this year in, in the Allsvenskan, it has it could happen in Norway. It could easily be, I know Borderlink was the history there four years ago when they, or three years ago when they did it for the first time. You know, you can have a, a, a Lillestrøm or an Odd or someone go and win it in the near future. I'm, convinced by that because the, the the generic level of Norwegian football now is just getting better and better and I think it's just a case now of making sure that the league and everyone involved in it keeps looking at how we can improve and doesn't just start relying on what well, we've got good and we just copy and paste what we've been doing because you know I when I first joined in in 20 or when I first came to Norway 10 years ago you know it was a pretty we were or Norway is probably 10 years behind where England were and now Norway are probably closer to what England are now than what they were. Not so much top level because, you know, we haven't got loads of players. But Haaland is the most valuable player in the world at the minute. And he comes from a small town on the West Coast and is playing for one of the best teams in the world. And Erdogan is now currently playing for the league champions in Arsenal or the league leaders, sorry, not yet champions in Arsenal. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I think every all of that is contributing to a much better product, a much better Norwegian league. The TV deal that's coming in this year is worth far more. So all of a sudden, there's even more money being invested into the Norwegian system. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a fantastic league to be involved in, and again, was one of the big reasons why I've wanted to take the step up with Hamcom and and why I've been so fortunate to to still be in it um, as of today. VARs coming into the Elitisarian for 2023. I, I saw recently Alsvenskan voted against bringing it in over there. Now, I hate it. I hate VAR. I, I was massively in favour of VAR coming in before it came in, but I hate it now. And uh, it's not just about the decision. It's about how um, you, know, you can't even celebrate a goal now properly. But is it from a coaching perspective now, what are your feelings towards it? Is it needed? And I know the referee said we need to bring it in because to, to conform into line with UEFA, it, it's a it's a fact of life, isn't it? That VAR is here to stay. But um, I mean, are you looking forward to it coming into Elite Surrey or not? I think there's been enough high-profile incidents this year that means that it probably needs to be 
um, implemented. And I don't mean that to criticise then the, the level of referee because I have full respect for anyone that, that referees. I, I think it's a, a near impossible job. I have a bad enough time doing it on training during the week. So to do it with uh, an audience of thousands of fans shouting at you at the same time, it, it, you know, it is a big thing. But the reality is, is that, you know, people... As long as football is as, as valuable as it is, we've just talked about the money coming in and the consequences of decisions, that there needs to be an, an element of if someone makes a mistake, you have the ability to correct the mistake. And, I, and the mistake is obviously subjective because what I hope doesn't happen and what I felt did happen when it was first introduced in England was the referees stopped refereeing. They just let the, the VAR deal with the situation. You can't have a foolproof... Uh, VAR you can't you know you can't have a completely objective game of football where every decision is correct there are going to be decisions where uh, they can be interpreted differently depending on certain things and I, and I think if VAR is done in the way that it's done in cricket where an umpire makes a decision and then it's reviewed and then there are some things that it's not out or not out it's just the referees or the umpire's call so whatever the umpires called it as is the decision. And as long as it's done like that, so for example, for penalties, if it's if it's like, is there contact, is there not contact? If it's if it's not clear and obvious that someone's made a mistake, then just go with the referee's call. And that might that will go both ways. There'll be times where the referee gives a penalty and it might look soft, but it's not enough to overturn it. And it'll be the other way where he doesn't give it and it looks like it should be a penalty, but again, he doesn't give it. You know, the, the, the idea of VAR was always to correct completely obvious decisions, not marginal ones that are subjective. Offside, I think, is different because I think offside is black and white. And yes, it is extremely frustrating if he's offside by a big toenail, but it's, it's no different to a goal in that for me. But if the ball's over the line, it's over the line. There is no, it doesn't matter if it's over the line by 0.1 of a centimetre or if it's over the line by a metre, it's a goal or it's not a goal. It's the same for offside for me. Um, but in terms of the, the decisions that are subjective, for me, the referee has to still referee and then it has to be used as a tool, nothing more than that. Uh, if you allow the VIR just to referee the game, then the game's dead. And that's, that's you know, then you you may as well not have referees anymore, just let the let technology take over. But um, I think next year will be chaos. I think it will be absolute Bedlam because everyone's got to get used to it. I've got to get used. I've never. I've been to one game where VAR has been used, and I'm as a supporter. So it's a new. It's going to be a new one for me as a coach. How do we? Uh, how do we handle decisions that go there and then at the time? Um, but you know, we just have to all get used to it and use the winter to to learn from that. I think that was very well said. Some of the best stuff I've heard, actually, from anyone about uh, VAR. I'm going to use that in some clips on Twitter or something. There was some really... I really agree with pretty much everything you said there. Umpires calling cricket. Not enough people can accept in football that there will be a lot of 50-50 decisions. So just go with the on-field call. And I don't think that's done enough. It, too many times a, a, a close decision is then overturned. It doesn't need to be overturned. But it's because people can't accept that it'll be 50, 51% of one and 49% of another. That's life. That is life. That is football, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I think that's very well said, Tom. Um, finally, finally, uh, Hamcam, the future, the objectives of the club. What is the ceiling for Hamcam 
do you think going forward? Obviously, I'm sure you want to retain your place again in, in Elite Serien, but um, are you going to be looking to avoid that second season syndrome as such? Well, I've used, uh, obviously, I have history in Border Limp. So I've used Border Limp 2018 as my reference all year. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at the, points and uh, how the points were gathered from that Borglimp team in 2018. It reads 30 games played, 6 wins, 14 draws and 10 defeats. Hamcam in 2022, 6 wins, 13 draws, 11 defeats. So if we'd managed to get a point against Trumsa or Lillestrøm, then we would have had the exact same record and we all know what happened to Borglimp the year after. So it, it's, obviously I use it as a kind of half joke. We're not going to be going for silver next year as a as a as a start point but my point is is that the, the most difficult season in many ways is the first one because you have to just stay up uh the second one is difficult because everyone gives you more respect it's, it's no different to what i went into with Stuart Osbink last year that the, the they survived the first year and then i come along and all of a sudden all those Hawaii chaos games they had in 2020 became more balanced because teams gave you more respect. They gave you the ball more. They say, you know, well, if you're difficult to break down, then we're going to wait for you to be open and 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 out of position. And then we're going to look to count on you more if your balance is not right. So we have to continue to adapt, to evolve. You know, we, we've said all along that the, the aim for this year was to stay up and then we were going to look to improve a lot of things around the club. So we've... We've got plans to redevelop the inside of the stadium, so we have better changing rooms and better facilities in general. We've 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 um, we've increased a little bit some of the staff, so we've now got a a physical coach who's in charge of the gym as well as a physio, and we've got GPS coming in in the winter, and we've we've got all those sort of more modern things coming into play. We want to improve the squad. We need to improve the squad, um, and both myself and Jakob have a full preseason now to. To build on what we've already done, we have an identity. We we know what we are good at. We know what we have to look like if we're going to have a ham cam shirt on. Um, so now we need to do it better, and, and we have to do it better because the quality, as we said, is higher. We're we're going to be tipped to be in the relegation zone. Um, there's no point pretending that, and there's no point uh, pretending it's going to be anything otherwise. But it doesn't mean we have to accept it, and we, we don't accept it. You know, we we believe that you know we, this year we've had the highest points per million kroner spent in budget of anyone in the league. We, we can do that again next year. And the biggest thing in that Borderlimp team that went from being 13th to second was that they were coached. You know, Shetel Knutten as a coach took a group of players that were pretty much the same group of players and made them better. So for myself and Jakob, that's what we have to do in the winter. We have to, we have to set the standards. We have to coach the team and, and be better. Um, and as long as we all have that mentality, which I believe we do as a club, then, um, you know, firstly, we stay up and we do that as quick as we can. I always think that the first thing to aim for is be better than last season. So if 31 points was what we achieved last year, then 32 points should be the target next year. And if we score 33 goals, then we score 34 next year. And if we conceded 42, then we concede 41. And once we hit those targets, we see how many games we've got left and the rest is is up to us. You can see what Odd and Trumps have done this year with the same... Uh, objectives. They, they. If you'd asked them, they would have said that the first priority is to stay up. They did it with eight games to go, and then they went on a fantastic winning record and ended up finishing f uh, fifth and seventh. So, 
you know, we, that's what we have to look to achieve. And I've put a fantastic foundation down. We have loads of enthusiasm around the club. We have a, a great player group. Uh, we have a really good board. Jakob is a fantastic manager. I really, really enjoy working with him. And I've really learned a lot this year. And, you know, we have so many things that are positive right now, but we have to, we have to use that momentum and, and not take it for granted because it, it can, at this point, it can go both ways. We can be sucked in and all that enthusiasm disappears, or we can take another spring step forward and, and be really then a, a part of the establishment. And that's what we, we hope to achieve this year. And uh, I look forward to, I already look forward to starting back in January when we all meet up again. Yeah, I think Troms are a pretty good blueprint, actually. Um, I thought they'd struggle this season, second season syndrome. And they've not got an amazing squad. They've got a couple of standout players. But it's not, that for, for the position they finished in, I think they've overachieved, to be fair. So I think they're a good blueprint. It sounds like you're in a really good place, sort of personally as well there at Hamcam, you know, in this um, assistant manager role under Jakob Mickelson. I forgot to even sort of talk about Jakob. I feel like we've got to just have a quick word on him before he goes. I mean, he, he's got a great record in the past, re reputation. Must be a fantastic man to work with. Unbelievably so. And it's taken time. It always does. I mean, it's one thing changing role. Um, you know, you go from being the man who makes all the decisions to the man who makes part of the decisions. But I don't have an ego. And that's not me trying to sound fantasy or I, I don't have an ego so the, when we first met I, I I felt straight away he felt like a, a boss he felt like a manager uh, and I've always had an, an outlook that I want to make people better I want to make players better and I want to include those around me and I, that's that's one of my strengths and one of my abilities um, the only thing I asked of Jakob was he had to listen and he's allowed to make any decision he wants he's the manager he gets paid the money to make the big calls and he, he's the one that has to stand in front of the camera before and after every game and, and explain those calls. My job is to help do his job better. Uh, and that was quite an easy thing for me to to fall into. Uh, we were very easy in terms of who had responsibility for what. As I said before, he, he, was, he likes to have focus on the defensive side and he's very, very good at it. I like to have more focus on the offensive side and statistically I need to get better at that, but that's fine. <laughs> Um, but you know, we, we, we fell into our roles very simply. Um, I can say exactly what I think to him. And I think that as long as my ego isn't there, I think it's an advantage to have an assistant who's been a manager before because they have a certain degree of empathy then of what they're going through and what they think and why they're thinking what they do and what discussions they need to have with the players and how to put it. Uh, and Jakob is very good to just ask what you think. You know, I, I'll give my 11 for a game. He'll give his 11 for a game. If it's the same, it's an easy conversation. If it's not, then we discuss between us what we decide to do in the end. And he has the final say. And I'm not being funny. He's made quite a few good calls this year. So, you know, that's that's how it is. So he's, he's, very, um, he's very good tactically. He's very good at seeing not just what the opponent do, but picturing how then we can stop it, as we've said before. Uh, he's very good managing the players. I think if you speak to a lot of the, the senior players, they've really enjoyed working with him. He, he, he's very good to consult them at certain times. He's very good to consult the captain's group and inform them about things. So there's not that talk in the changing room of why is that and not that and blah, blah, blah. He's very good to to have that dialogue. And he's all in. You know, he he it's not just about the first team for him. He's interested in the club. He's interested about 
the, the town. You know, he's moved his his wife and his two kids over to Hamar, and they're absolutely loving it in the in the in the town. And he goes and meets sponsors, and he he's he's very public and very you know he he he's integrated himself in in the city and. You know, a lot of people raised an eyebrow when he he took the job because they didn't understand he could have got pretty much most jobs in in Denmark apart from perhaps Copenhagen and and those types of club. But he was very open. I want to go to I want to go to Norway because I want to play Rosenborg and I want to play Brann and I want to play uh, Molder and those types of teams. I don't want to go and play Norshalon for the fiftieth time because I want you know I want to experience something else not just the footballing side but from a life side I want to to go and do something different and if you look in his CV he's been manager in Tanzania he's been in Hammarby in Sweden uh, he's been in Denmark as we've said uh, so he he's done pretty much most things and and that lust for adventure is is why we are so lucky to have him and. As I said, I'm really happy that our paths crossed. I'm fantastic in understanding Danish now, which I never thought I'd be 12 months ago. Um, and I really hope that I get the chance to work with him for longer. And I really hope he he continues to enjoy being in Hamcam because there's no question for me, the day that he leaves Hamcam, Hamcam will be in a better position than when he arrived. And he will go and manage a, a top team in, in Scandinavia or Belgium or, or wherever his next steps go because you know he's only 41 he's done a lot in his coaching career so far and there's there's much more to come i think the inevitable mention of belgium taking away the talents of scandinavia it's uh, never ending but we appreciate your time tom it was absolutely brilliant interview they seem to get better year on year with you and um are we following we'll be following your interests uh, your your progress with interest up there as a club and as a person. Thanks very much for your time here on the Nordic Football Podcast. It was brilliant. Thanks. My pleasure. And thank you for the mentions every week. I don't know how much I need to pay you for each mention, but I'll <laughs> gladly uh, I'll gladly take them as the season goes on. But um, as always, keep up the good work and uh, give my best to Jonathan when you speak to him next. I certainly will. Thanks very much, uh, Tom. Uh, take care. That was Tom Dent on the Nordic Football Podcast. We... Once again, thank him for his very generous time and what was a brilliant in-depth interview. I thought there was some fantastic stuff there. Really enjoyed it a lot. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Denty24. He's also on Instagram. Remember, you can follow the Nordic Football Podcast at Nordic Footpod. Myself, Steve Wiss, at Meatman Soccer and Jonathan as well at JF Football. Well, I hope you enjoyed it and there will be a NFP season review coming up probably towards the back end of the World Cup. So stay tuned for that one and take care. See you next time.